as we've done a couple of times, well, once already this summer and a, and a couple more times this summer, uh, we have asked um, certain members of our congregation to come and actually preach through the series that we're moving through. Over the last couple of months here at Redemption, we've been moving through the book of 1 John. Um, and this morning specifically, uh, we'll be looking at 1 John chapter 3, or the first few verses, first 10 verses in 1 John chapter 3. Um, and so this morning we've asked David Cathcart to come and share with us from 1 John chapter 3. Uh, David is a longtime member of Redemption um, as part of the deacon board. Um, with his, uh, with his wife, Stephanie, they lead a missional community here at Redemption. Um, and so uh, let me ask you guys to, to be gracious as we hear from David. Um, this is not something David does on a regular basis. Um, but David, thank you. And uh, we look forward to hearing from God's word. Yeah, you can clap. Thank you. <laughs> Help me feel welcome. Raise this up. How's everyone doing this morning? Good? It's good to be here. Um, I didn't realize I was even going to get an introduction, but I'll introduce myself as well. Uh, my name is David Cathcart. I have uh, been a member of this church uh, since 2011, so eight years now. Um, been on the deacon board for a few years, and uh, we've led the Central Augusta missional community for, um, gosh, quite a long time now. Um, I work every the weekend, so if you don't recognize me, that could be a big part of it. Um, so at most, I can be at church twice a month. So when I say it's great to be here, I really do mean that. It's always a pleasure to be able to worship um, and just be with you all, um, especially in this new context. So this is pretty fun. I'd like to open up today just giving a quick thanks to everyone who's preached beforehand. Everyone's done a great job. Um, specifically, just last week's text out of 1 John chapter 2 was pretty, pretty challenging, pretty tough. Um, quick story, when I was asked to preach many months ago, um, it kind of just comes out of email, hey, would you, be con- you know, would you consider preaching sometime over the summer? And I was like, well, sure, that'd be, you know, that'd be an honor. I'd be honored to do so. But you don't know what the text is going to be. It's just kind of a blanket, are you interested? And so... Sure, sure, I'd say yes to that. But we've been going through some pretty challenging books of the Bible at the time. We've been going through stuff like Jonah and Amos, uh, some of these minor prophets that had some pretty tough things to say to to God's people. And so you start to, or at least I start to panic and start thinking, uh, is Revelations coming? Is the big dog? Is that what's coming next? Is that what I'm going to be asked to preach through? And so some time passes and we're told that's going to be 1 John uh, so I can just breathe a huge sigh of relief. I love First John. It's a book that's been very impactful in my life. I've always found it encouraging. I just recently read it, so I was like, yes, First John, that I can do. And so we're asked to read the book together, and we kind of wait for our assignments. And in reading the book, I remember reading through chapter 2 and just thinking, that's a tough chapter. I would prefer not to get that chapter if I have any say in it. That's the most revelation-y thing uh, in First John, so I'd rather just not do anything with Antichrist. Some more time goes by, and uh, we get our email assignments, and then, you know, I try to find my name on it, David Cathcart, July, First John chapter 2. And I'm like, that's got to be a mistake. <laughs> that's got to be a joke. Uh, did, I, did I make Ben and Reggie mad? Did I miss a meeting that I don't know about? Am I being punished? Uh, I don't know much about Antichrist. Uh, everything I learned about them, like probably everyone else here, was from Left Behind. 
Uh, I gave away all those books, and I don't want to have to buy them back for $3. Um, so really, Brent did a great job uh, last week with some hard material. It turns out I read the email wrong. I, I do have First John chapter 2, but it's just the last two verses, um, and then most of chapter 3. So Brent did a great job last week, uh, really setting up the stage this week. Uh, continuation of John's letter, um, a, a book that uh, expands uh, John's defense of the gospel against heresy and against Antichrist, and a book that reminds us of God's true love for us. Um, so let me go ahead and open us up in prayer, and then we'll get into First uh, John, most of chapter 3. Heavenly Father, um, God, it's good to be here. Uh, it's good to be just in the presence uh, of this community um, in this church. God, we just pray for your spirit to be with us during this time. Uh, we pray it can be an encouraging time. We pray it can be a time that our hearts are open. Uh, God, that's a time that we can listen to your scripture and to your word, uh, which is, uh, God, just the living water. It is the life. Uh, Father, it is God-breathed, and um, I pray we can cling to that, look for truth in it, and I pray that your spirit can just move in us this morning and help shape us. We love you. Amen. All right, so we're in First uh, John, end of chapter 2, and into most 3. I'll read it over us. And it says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. So I mentioned earlier that this book um, and this letter has been really encouraging in my faith and my life. And uh, have you guys heard of an Enneagram? Yeah? If you have, you're probably sick of them. Uh, If you haven't, uh, well, let me do just a little introduction, and then you can look into it and stick around for the memes. Those are actually pretty good. Uh, But it's a type of personality test. There's nine of them. There's nine personalities. You're kind of assigned one, and you can wing in another direction. You can have kind of like a subtype. All right, so I took the test, uh, which really means my wife took it, and she read them all and just told me what I was. (laughs) And I read it, and I was like, yeah, that's me. She says that I'm a five, which is the thinker or the observer. And I wing to a six, which is like a skeptical type thinker. 
Uh, so I'm always paranoid. I have a contingency plan for everything. For a zombie apocalypse, I've got you covered. I know exactly how I'd survive. You pretty much just need a ladder. Zombies don't do too well with ladders. But small things like packing my kids for a trip, I'm just useless with. All the minor details, I just can't fit together. That's not my, that's not my skill set. So one thing with fives is that we are fear-motivated. Other types can be motivated by shame or anger. Mine is fear, and that was something that's kind of surprising for me to find out. I can often be a little aloof, and uh, maybe sometimes that mask as bravery. Someone called me brave once, so it's kind of something I really clung to. I'd, I'd like that to be said about myself. But driven by fear, maybe not an accurate assessment of myself. But it's something that helped me place how I first began to discover God. I grew up evangelical, and, uh, and I grew up in a Christian home. I heard the gospel frequently, uh, but what I took away was always kind of the same message uh, that I'm not good enough, which is true. Um, but I always took it to say that God is watching and God is not happy with what he sees, that I always needed to be better. I always saw God as a judge. We would pray often for church and church for Christ's return, and I would always be thinking, maybe not yet. I am not personally ready to come face to face with him. I think I need more time to better myself. I was still often in church to fear the Lord. It's easy, pretty easy to find that in Scripture. So it was all too easy for me to see that God was a judge, someone that I needed to be fearful of, someone who had control, maybe like a cop that's on the interstate with the little radar gun hiding behind the hind- hiding behind the trees as they do, ready to get me for speeding. I kind of felt that that was the way that God would interact with me. Scripture eventually revealed that I was missing a big piece of the gospel. I was missing a big piece of the heart and why of the gospel. John here, he's an eyewitness to the resurrection. He's a disciple. And he encourages us that our relationship to God is as children. And this means the same thing today as it does then which means that we're beloved, we're heirs. And I realize that just by saying that, that God is Father alone, that doesn't always spur adoration, although it should. I think that's probably just evidence of the fall and the sin and the brokenness of relationships we have in the world. That I could say that God is Father, and you're not like, oh, okay, I got it, that's good, let's go home. We have broken relationships here, and not everyone has that safety of home to know what a good parent does or what a good parent Uh, how they love their child. So what does the Bible say about how a father loves? One of my favorites, and probably a big favorite of this room, is the story of the prodigal son. It's a story about a son who wants to get out of the shadow of his father, get away from him. He wants his inheritance up front. He wants to do it his own way. And of course, it doesn't go well. He realizes his mistake and decides that maybe if he can just go back home, work for his father, instead of the rightful heir, just to work for him, just to have a place to stay, that he could do that. And so he returns home, and what the scripture says about the father's reaction is that the father runs to his son, although he's still far away, that although he's the master of the estate, the person of authority, that he runs to his son from a far off distance to embrace him and to kiss him. That is the way that a father or a parent sees their child. Matthew goes on to say that how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? 
God disciplines us out of love. Hebrew says that to be undisciplined is to be illegitimate. That if you were left to do whatever you wanted, if you were left to do whatever you desired, it is a mark that you may be unloved. A parent is to, to guide you and to give you instruction in the ways of the world. Discipline is good. He instructs us towards wisdom and righteousness. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. He is our refuge and our fortress. We can trust in him. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God is with us. The waters will not overtake us and the fire will not burn us. He protects us. God prepares our enemies before us. He knew us while still in the womb and knows the number of hairs on our head. God provides an inheritance. Again, from Matthew, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Which I think is great, that he's been pleased to share in that inheritance for us. He's been pleased to give us the kingdom. And lastly, Jesus also says that there is no greater love than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. A love that is extended to us on our behalf for our rescue from sin. In Galatians, uh, Paul helps reinforce this idea. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, But when, it's, when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. You are, and since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. I think that's good news. Adoption in the Roman times means the same thing as it does today. That if you're adopted into a family, you have equal status with natural-born children. It's not a lesser uh, delegation in this text that when we are adopted into sonship, we have the same status of a natural-born child of God. Although Jesus would be, of course, the right hand we are invited to share in that inheritance of his kingdom, to be part of God's family. It meant full rights to a state and ownership. The word Abba is most similar to Papa or Dada in our language. This is something Paul is intentionally writing to use language that shows an intimacy to show the connection that we have with God the Father. Maybe something like, if I were to introduce myself, I'd be like, you can call me David, Mr. Cathcart, that's my father. You know, that father figure. The language here says dada, something intimate. So the creator of all things, he calls us children. We're invited to feel the lines of his face, to climb his neck, and to hang off his shoulders. We are invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. Tim Keller has a tweet uh, from five years ago, and I love Twitter. I think it's a great way just to share ideas. Uh, Tim Keller put this out five years ago, and it's just always stuck with me. And he says, Only a child of the king can wake the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water. We have that kind of access to God. I'll probably just read that again because I think it's so powerful, and I want you to kind of just hang on to what's being said here. All right, There's a king. You are his child. The king has authority. In this case, it's God, creator of everything. You are his child. And he says, Only a child of the king can wake the king up at 3 a.m. for a glass of water. We have that kind of access to God. This text now uh, is encouraging in other ways because now I have kids and I can kind of 
relate to it in a different way than I have previously. Um, I guess in this case, I mean, honestly, the 3 a.m. glass of water happens probably every day. Uh, If you have my kids, especially before bed, they're going to have lots of water before bed just to delay it. That something just goes with the territory of parenthood. And you always say yes. You always get them more. You always wake up, tuck them back in, try to go back to sleep if you're if you're lucky. <laughs> um, but now that I'm parent, I'm a parent that these words mean something new to me. Um, I adore my children. Uh, I remember when Cyrus was born. We were about due for a, a phone upgrade, so of course we are excited about it. We decide you know we're probably going to take a lot of pictures. Uh, being parents, let's go ahead and get these new phones, let's get a bigger upgraded phone so we can take more photos of our kids. And of course it's not enough. The amount of photos that me and my wife took on a daily basis uh, is staggering. The videos really do you in, they really take up the most space. So for the first uh, two years of Cyrus's life, because that's, you know, a phone contract, first two years, uh, Cyrus just has his own phone. He just has his own phone that's in my top drawer. It's got all of his photos. I don't want to get them off of there. So it's just, I need to hold on to that forever. I used to be better with technology, but it's just surpassed me and I can't keep up in my early 30s. So heaven help us. When Vivian came along, it was time for another phone upgrade because they were about two years apart. So I was like, well, we need even more space. And it wasn't enough. We've run out of phone space on our phones because of all the pictures we take of our kids. As soon as they go to bed, uh, you miss them. As soon as they go to bed... Uh, we'd tuck them in and just pull up the, uh, excuse me, but we'd pull up the pictures just to kind of reflect on the day, all the goodness, um, all the things we're excited about. Um, essentially what I'm trying to say is, as I started to understand the heart of the God, uh, the heart of God um, through this scripture and through this text, I began to realize that there's something I was missing. To understand God as judge was not Appropriate. It was not fully accurate, although that is part of his character. To call as children invites us into a very fantastic love. It was something that I needed to help. Uh, it is something that my heart needed to understand. I had to become, uh, I had to start to realize that, uh, you know, as God is judge, it was a person I tried to avoid so I wouldn't get into trouble. But then I began to realize that he's a dad, he's a parent, he's the person you run to when you are in trouble. And our trouble was sin. And God made a way to deal with it for us once and for all. If we were to look back at 1 John and verse 5, he says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. God forgives our sin to draw us near because we are his children. Everyone who breaks the sin, I'm sorry, everyone who sins breaks the law. And everyone has sin. But he appeared to take away our sins. His appearance, of course, means a physical appearance. John uses this book to encourage believers that he is an eyewitness to all the accounts of Christ, a testimony that John never refutes even to his grave. John maintains that he has seen and he knows the risen Lord. And this also combats heresy, as we mentioned about Antichrist, uh, docetism, which was a form of Gnosticism. It was a heresy that said that Christ did not physically come to earth. No physical body of Christ would, of course, mean that there was no physical suffering, no physical death. The heresy would would say that uh, they believed all matter was evil. They couldn't believe that God would become a physical man. 
How could something so pure and so good become man? How could it become physical? And if there's no physical death of Christ and there's no resurrection, this, of course, has to be defeated. This heresy, of course, has to be fought against. It's important to realize that forgiveness of sin was the primary prayer of the people of God. N.T. Wright says in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, that Jews did not perceive themselves to be living within a story of an angry, moralistic God who threatened people that he would send them to hell if they displeased him. Nor were they hoping that if somehow they could make all things right, that they would go to a place called heaven and be with God forever. They were hoping for rescue and renewal within the present world, not from it. Through the new covenant, Israel itself would be rescued from the death that is exile, and the nations of the world would be as well. One of the central and vital ways of expressing this hope was to speak of the forgiveness of sin. Right? It's because of sin that we were exiled from his presence in the very beginning. It was because of sin that the law of Moses served as a placeholder so that we could still have community with God until the Messiah comes. But with sin being forgiven, we can be in the presence of God just like in Eden. And G. Wright also says in this book something very profound. He says, To sin is to fall in love with death. The scripture says that God is love and that God is life. He created all things and he sustains all things. Life emanates from him. In my mind, I kind of just imagine God is just this heartbeat of goodness of life that just beats for all time. It's a heartbeat that doesn't stop beating. If you think about it, I mean, in general, humans are pretty resilient. Uh, That's one thing I've kind of found out just working in healthcare. My wife's a therapist and tells me all kinds of stories and you just see the resilience of children, of men, of women, just people everywhere. You see the resilience of how they can overcome sickness or how they can adapt to illness, make it a part of their daily life and but continue going on living in hope. The heart doesn't stop beating so easily. It is hard to stop a heart from beating. And yet when it comes to God, it's a heartbeat that never stops. It's been there since the beginning, and life just continues to pump out of him. He sustains all things. And so I think it makes sense that if you were to reject God, and instead to worship his creation, to love everything else, that if you reject the heartbeat, it is to fall in love with death. It is to fall in love with exile. So it makes perfect sense that those who love death can't be in the presence of life. It makes sense that if you have fallen in love with death and a slave to sin, that you're going to have a separation from God. Our rejection of God led to exile, and it cursed the whole earth. But despite our transgression, God pursued us out of love. The law provided atonement through the blood of animals to cover sin so that we could remain in the presence of God. I think it's important to bear in mind that with the Jews and the Israel, that God lived in their presence with the tabernacle. Tabernacle uh, is a cool word because it means to pitch a tent. God pitched a tent with his people. He was actually there. He ruled over them. Uh, If my memory serves, they could bring him decisions to make, and he would communicate with them through lanterns of yes or no. I agree or I disagree. God physically communicated with his people and through the prophets. All right, but because of Israel's refusal to repent, their kingdoms were destroyed. The temple was destroyed, and God would not be in the presence again until Messiah comes. All right, and that tracks with the minor prophets we just read. 
prophets like Amos and Jonah, that there would be an enemy raised up because of their sin to destroy their lands and to drive them out. But the good news is that Jesus' blood from the cross covers our sins totally in scope of how bad they were and for all time. The forgiveness of sins is complete and it's in total and it's forever. Because of its removal, we can commune intimately with God in the relationship uh, that John's remind us that relationship is as children. We can commune with him as heirs. Uh, as Brent read last week out of Jeremiah 31, and we'll just revisit just the very end of that text here because he talks about the new, cov- the new covenant. It says, For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Check and make sure I miss anything. All right, no, we're good. We're good. All right, so we um, we have no shame as children of God. God's forgiveness gives us total freedom. We can refer back to the text, and it says, "And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming." You can imagine that as someone who is so fearful of the Lord, not ready to meet Him feeling that I had to get myself right before I could ever come in the presence of God. And then to read the words of John here, that encourages, I don't have to shrink from him in shame at his coming, but he runs to me. He welcomes me into the family. We'll continue into the text, um, which talks a little bit more about what that family looks like. We've talked about that we are children of God. We have talked about that this is possible and made possible through Christ taking away our sins. It's something that he does for us on our behalf is because of the resurrection that this is made possible. All right, so the rest of 1 John 3 that we'll be in, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. All right, so belief in the gospel means repentance and turning away from sin and sinning. The victory of the cross is complete and total, right? Because it's a resurrection over death. And that resurrection leads us into victory as well. The bondage of sin no longer sickens us and no longer keeps us in exile. We can be with God again. Sin no longer keeps us from God. We do not keep on sinning because, as the song says, the boast of death, sin, and grave has been silenced. We have the power to stop sinning, to repent, and to embrace the life, that heartbeat, that is God. As we draw near to God in his kingdom, we are transformed. Right? Our desires become like his desires. God's children will look like him. It becomes part of our heritage and our background. 
being rooted into that vine, having those roots, our fruit will be his fruit. All right, we're all heavily influenced by our heritage and our backgrounds. Be it the foods we eat, household chores that we assign to ourselves or to our spouses, sometimes in secret, that leads to lots of fights. (laughs) Maybe mostly, uh, especially here in the South with the SEC, it could be the sports teams that we root for. Uh, I'm originally from Texas, and uh, I went to the University of Texas in Austin uh, because that's where my parents went to school. We grew up as just a Texas family. It wasn't much of a choice. (laughs) It was just who we rooted for every Saturday. We were a family that wore burnt orange. So when the decision came to be which college I was going to go to, it was going to be, hopefully, the University of Texas. If it was A&M, still a good school. Maybe just try not to go there. If it was OU, don't come back home. (laughs) All right? Not allowed. Right, but we have these heritages that influence us essentially to grow up in an environment um, heavily weighs on the way that we think, the decisions we make, the things that stir our heart. So if we are God's children, forgiven of our sins, living in his kingdom, as we abide in him, as the scripture said, then we will begin to look like him. We will no longer sin because we are given God's seed and eventually we change it doesn't have to be overnight. I don't believe the text says to be overnight, that if you were to wake up tomorrow and be unchanged, that like all bets are off. I think it's allowed to take however much time that it needs for the Spirit to rid us of our sins and to, to show us the truth, to show us that it makes us sick, but that we can be well because of what Christ has done. But I think we still have to ask, you know, what does that look like? What does that look like to be a child of God? What behaviors does that look like for us? And it's not very hard to find uh, something in Scripture about how to be moral, how to be good. I think that's uh, that could be a lot of a reason why a lot of people are here to be reminded of that. Um, but I think we have to remember that it's because of a heart change. It's because we are rooted in a new seed. We are a new creation, and. It, being a part of a new creation, a part of a new family, that our actions and the fruit that we bear begins to look like something different. So the verse I chose was something out of Colossians. Uh, We were just in Colossians earlier, uh, I think last year. So it could be a verse that everyone might remember or be familiar with. But it's from Colossians 3, uh, verses 5 through 11, and I'll read it. It says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. I think this is just beautiful scripture. I think this is wonderful and fantastic. I want you to see that it's not just something about behavior change. I want you to see this isn't some plea from the stage just to ask you to be good or to be more moral. But Paul is explaining a lot of heart changes that are happening here. 
that I think are uh, important. It reinforces that we are new creations in Christ. It says to take off the old self with its old practices and to put on the new self. I think it matches with what First John says about being a new seed. We have a new seed in us, no longer being born of Adam, but we are now born of Christ and his, lineages, uh, his lineage. I think it's also great because it talks quite a bit about unity. And you wouldn't believe it or you wouldn't see it at first hand, uh, but it does. In 7, it says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. And I think the you here is a you all. It's a you all used to walk in these ways in a life that you once lived. So this is me saying that you all, me included, everyone here, used to walk in a way that was sexually immoral, impure, full of lust, evil desires, and greed. That was idolatry. We also used to walk in things like anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. But we are a new creation. I think the unity here uh, is because if you were to look around, there would be that commonality of these are things that we used to be, but God has saved us from them. We used to be these things, but we are now something else. We are something born again. I think it also means that we have to be graceful and merciful. For people who don't attend church, for anyone who were to walk off the street, no matter what they look like, no matter what clothes they wore, no matter what state of their heart is in, that we're supposed to identify with them because we used to walk in such a way. There's no room for pride in, in uh, conversing and interacting with people who don't know the Lord or who may have sin because it's something that we used to be in. I think it's incredibly powerful and incredibly freeing to consider that we don't have to carry that pride anymore, but that we can extend love to everybody. I think we further see the unity that's asked of the church and of God's family at the end in 11, where he says, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. If I think about that now in today's terms, I think of that as saying there is no Protestant, there is no Catholic, there is no Orthodox. Everyone who believes is of the family of God. There is no pride in perhaps doctrine or um, tradition, but we all worship Christ. We all worship God. We are all born again of the same new seed that stems from the resurrection and this is because of what Christ has accomplished. All right, we have no place to judge. But we can be humble and let God accomplish what God has accomplished for us. To usher in his kingdom is something that we can be prayerful of. So I think as we end our time here um, and transition into response, transition into communion and prayer and a few more songs, I think it's important to consider and ask ourselves, what does our heritage look like to the rest of the world? Right? Being called children of God and being invited to know him. God calling us children because of the resurrection of Christ and the forgiveness of our sins, that we can be a part of his family. And as part of this new family, being like an ambassador to the rest of the world, 
emanating his glory and his grace, reflecting that love that is from the God to everyone else. This new heritage that we have, what does it look like to the rest of the world? How are we acting as ambassadors in our everyday life, as mothers, as fathers, as employers, as employees, to downtown Augusta, to the fellow members of this church, to members of other churches, to people of other religions, to people who just don't want to know who God is? How are we acting as ambassadors to them? So I'll close us in prayer, and um, Reggie's going to come up, talk about the next steps of communion uh, and leading our time in worship that way. So let me pray over us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, just this time together that we could um, spend in your word. Uh, we thank you for the words of John, which are just so encouraging. Um, God, these words of John that have just reminded us that we are... Um, a different relationship than we might have had an idea of God before, that, God, you are not out to get us, um, but, God, that you love us. You invite us and draw us into the family. God, that you've forgiven our sins so we can return from exile, so that we can be in your presence, so that we can turn to you in times of trouble, in times of joy, in anything and everything, God, that you can be a good father. Um, God, that you can redeem broken relationships uh, on this earth, broken relationships that might have said, I don't need a parent. I've been disappointed. I've been let down before. But God, that you can redeem that relationship for us. You can show us how a parent, how a father loves us. God, you promise good things for us. You want us to lead in to life. Um, So Father, we just pray that we can embrace that. We can quiet our mind. We can confess our sins during this time. And we can just take the communion uh, that is about to be presented um, gladfully, um, praising you, praising the Son for having the blood shed that covers our sins and for raising again to conquer death and to lead us into victory, Lord. We love you. Amen. So we're going to enter into.